Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Nowhere Podcast. Technology is constantly running in the background of our lives, yet for most of us, it's invisible. On Nowhere, we explore the intended and unintended influences that geospatial technology has on the real world. These are the stories of how geospatial tech unexpectedly affects our lives. I'm Jonathan Neufeld, CEO of TechTerra and host of Nowhere. Today, my guest is Dr. Josh Johnson, Principal Investigator for the Wildfire Sat Mission and Career Wildland Firefighter. Hey, Josh, thanks for being here. Hey, John, it's been a pleasure. Yeah, glad to have you on. And I'm excited to talk about Wildfire Sat and everything to do with wildfires. So you've built a career in wildland firefighting, and now you're the Principal Investigator for the Canadian Wildfire Sat Mission. Let's talk a little bit about why managing wildfire matters, and then we'll get into some of the specifics about the mission. Yeah, it sounds good. It's kind of odd, eh? You know, to to go from starting a pump to building a spaceship, but you never ask how these things happen in life. You know, when it comes to fire management, I think the idea of managing fire is a really good term as opposed to suppressing it. Fire is not always a bad thing. We we need it. Our actual the boreal force depends on it in a lot of ways to keep itself healthy. It's it's natural, but. We also live in this forest, and if we get a little bit too close to the fires, well, you know, we start to have conflicts, and we can't have as much fire on the landscape as climate change is kind of pushing us towards. So we're in a position where we do need to suppress some fires. We do need to monitor some fires, and the trade-off between which one you need to do is, is kind of a sliding scale. Where did they start? How did they start? Where are they headed? What's the likelihood they're going to get there and when? And uh, fire management is really all about that. Sometimes it's about preemptively putting fire on mm-hmm. the landscape. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's about removing it. And sometimes it's about just letting it do its thing and making sure that people get out of the way. So for our listeners who might not have a lot of contacts with wildfires, how many fires happen in Canada every year? Yeah, believe it or not, more than you think. The majority of our fires stay very small. Things that get accidentally caused by people quite tiny and tend to be caught really early in their life. Lightning fires tend to be more remote. We don't find them until late and some of them get to be gigantic, like bigger than the GTA kind of gigantic. And... On average, we have a few thousand every year. Usually around 8,000 is a fair number. And we can burn several million hectares of forest every year. But I think what is important for people who aren't familiar with this, fire in Canada is not the same thing as, you know, land use change fire. The sort of stuff you see in the Amazon or where people Mm -hmm. are deliberately stripping the, the land to turn it into farm. This is not deforestation. The forest is gone, but within weeks, there's green stuff coming up and it makes way for a whole new seeding in of forests, which is actually a huge carbon sink. If forest fires themselves aren't necessarily a bad thing, you know, because it's not becoming a palm plantation or something similar. It's, it's reseeding and regenerating as boreal forest again. Yes, absolutely. In a natural context, that's the way it, it should happen in this country, actually you know, well before humanity ever made it to this continent, fire was always here. It has a very natural role to play. Believe it or not, there's certain species of our forests, like the jack pines are an excellent example. Serotonous cones, if they don't get exposed to heat, the cone can't really open up and reseed. So some of those forests actually require fire in order to have uh, new growth. 
Absolutely. You know, and in a country the size of Canada, there's lots of fires that happen in remote areas well away from urban centers. Yeah. And this is kind of one of the interesting things. And, and it's part of the whole premise of wildfires that we know that under climate change, our, the amount of fires we're going to have and the amount of burned areas is just going to keep on increasing. But that doesn't necessarily mean that we have to aggressively suppress all those fires. But That's you right. do need to keep tabs on them. You got a whole bunch of fires running wild in the north. You can't just forget about them and just see what happens. The conventional approach these days is to you have to do reconnaissance flights, fly out there, take a good look at what's going on and make an mm-hmm. assessment of what will happen next. Let's talk about what happens next and and how is a typical fire managed? So it's a, a fire that's perhaps near an urban center or otherwise needs paying attention to. What does mm-hmm. the incident commander do and what is what is the schedule of fire management? What does that look like? Yeah, that's a good point. Well, first off, if there's a fire anywhere near where people are, it's a pretty simple equation. You detect it, you respond, you suppress as fast as possible. In fact, I think that's what we would call the initial attack fire management, where where you're finding the fires as early and as small as you can, and you're putting them out as fast as possible. We are incredibly good at that, by the way. It's success rates well over 95%. They, they're very, very efficient in this. But fire management, as it occurs in our country, it does follow a rhythm. You know, not every day of the year is filled with new fires and not every day of the year is is dead either, right? So there is kind of this sort of strategic planning cycle that occurs a little bit different province by province mm-hmm. and in mm-hmm. the territories. But usually first thing in the morning, you're kind of looking at what happened the day before and you're making an assessment of where your resources are in the landscape. Has anything changed overnight? And preparing for the alerts for that day, how you're going to respond, how you're going to mobilize crews. By the mid-afternoon, that's when the fire behavior is starting to pick up and they're going to start to get really active in that late afternoon period. That's usually where the response is happening. You're either suppressing the new ones or the ones that are big and on the landscape, you're you're just scrambling to keep on them. By the end of the day, you kind of, you know, everybody has a bit of a huddle and tries to figure out how bad it actually was. If things have changed, what's tomorrow looking like? And there is, right at the end of the day, a lot of the time, there is some prepositioning occurring. So that end of day planning cycle, you may see, you know, giving pilots orders so that they know where to go first thing in the morning and or actually parking aircraft so that they're in the right place for the morning. There's a bit of nuance there depending on duty cycles. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. in general, you know, that's kind of your strategic cycle throughout the day. But your response one for the initial attack for new fires being detected, that's continuous. Anytime that they hear about something new, they're on it. Right. And the interesting thing about wildfire sat is that it's it's not about new fire detection, right? It's a it's an entirely different mission. So for those who don't know wildfire sat, which is of course a Canadian project, what is the mission about and and why are we pursuing this? Yeah. Well, if you don't know about it, you probably don't know me because I'm kind of a one-trick pony these days. <laughs> but uh, I mean, you're the, the head guy, so of course. <laughs> Yeah, I, uh, it's been an interesting journey. But uh, what Wildfire Sat is, it's actually the world's first 
purpose-built fire monitoring mission for satellite. Up until now, we've always, you know, a lot of the stuff that we've produced for fire and a lot of the science that we have from satellites comes from general purpose missions Mm -hmm. or meteorological ones. They've never been built to actually serve fire management and fire management use cases. And that's what this mission is. It's a uniquely Canadian endeavor, and we are we are prioritizing that sort of strategic intelligence side of fire management. So what Wildfire Sat is about is not finding those new those new fires, like you said, but what it is about is doing triage of big ones that are on the landscape and giving people a good sense for what these fires are going to do today, tomorrow, and down the road so that they can, you know, for the ones that aren't going to receive that instantaneous suppression, the ones that are going to be left basically under surveillance and uh, throughout most of their life, we're able to provide very detailed sort of strategic assessments of those fires. We track them and we let them know, sort of elevate the comfort level to let some of them burn. And I'll tell you why. The reason is, like I said, we're going to have a lot more fire on the landscape under climate change, right? We already know that about 3% of the fires that occur in our country are responsible for about 97% of the area burned. They're the wow. vast majority. Yeah. Uh, so we have so we have a, a small number of very large fires that we that we have to pay attention to, in, in addition to the, the large number of much smaller fires that, that still happen. Exactly. And those big ones, those big ones, they consume so many resources, right? Like you can imagine for most small fires, you you got a helicopter, a crew that may have, you know, four or five firefighters on it. They hit it, they put it out real, real quick. Once that fire escapes, if it gets too big for that crew to catch it, all of a sudden, you know, it'll go from one hectare to 200 to 1,000 in a very short amount of time. And once you're into the thousands or ten thousands or hundreds of thousands of hectares, you need an army of firefighters. You, you yeah, don't I mean, need that, that's one of the magnitude bigger than what, what, what a crew can handle. I mean, that, that's just a staggeringly big fire. It drowns out all of your capacity. Right, it starts consuming all the aircraft. You'll you'll get to a point, and I'm sure if anyone out there and your and your listeners have tried to contract a helicopter late in the summer, they probably found out that hey, wait, there's not available. It's the fire people. They're they're consuming all of them, and it, the issue is that even if you aren't going to do that level of response with that many people attacking uh, the fire. Just having something that big on your landscape, it's dumping a ton of smoke into the atmosphere. It's affecting air quality. The bulk of our evacuations are actually caused because of air quality from these Mm -hmm. things. Mm -hmm. It impacts navigation for commercial air traffic as well. And so there's so many things that you have to monitor on those types of fires. And if your default route for doing it is to get in an aircraft and put some very experienced fire management personnel in an aircraft every day and go up into the north and fly these things. Well, number one, you're losing one more aircraft that could be used for a different purpose. And that person who has all of that experience could possibly be better used in a different decision-making role. You're tying up resources, right? So you've got a small number of very large fires, but you're tying up a whole number of critical resources, aircraft, people, experience. And with WildfireSat, then you're hoping to address that and free up some of those resources. Yes, 
I like to describe Wildfarasat as uh, strategic intelligence. It's not about giving a bunch of imagery. It is about providing information systems. It will provide that sort of strategic assessment of a fire. What did it do during the peak burn period? What did it do overnight? How fast is it moving? Which direction is it going? How much smoke is it producing? How high is that going in the atmosphere? Those types of things. So you're not just going to uh, put a satellite up there and then fire hose data down onto people. You're, you're planning you know, for some sort of intuitive data product out of this. <laughs> That is one of the other cool things about the mission is that we are an end-to-end funded mission. So everything from building the space segment, launching it, operating it, to downlinking it, and developing the complete end-to-end information system, processing it, and then getting it out to the, the front lines. But beyond that, we're also doing a lot of work with knowledge exchange with our, our partner end users. So your mm-hmm. your fire managers, your health networks, all these people who have a stake in the mission, we will be, well, as a few moments ago, before we started speaking, I was in meetings about this. We are working with them ahead of time to make sure that years before this thing is launched, their input is really what's driving every decision we make and how we design the products so that it fits with their needs and makes it easier for them to consume them. So it it really is a complete Canadian partnership and from industry to feds to provinces and territories and municipalities. It's kind of a an all-around good news story, which has kind of come together organically and now we're mm-hmm. ready to roll. Excellent. So let's talk about some of those those end products because I would imagine most people don't know what sort of data gets used in fire management, right? So, you know, and, and we're not talking to a super technical audience here, but but what sort mm-hmm. of data products can people expect to see out of this? And and then of course, you know, let's maybe talk a little bit about who can access it as well. Yeah. Wow. So many good questions there, but <laughs> so. Yeah, my colleagues in the U.S. and the U.S. Forest Service, they coined a term long time ago when I was meeting with them that I love. It's don't give me imagery, give me information. And that is very much it. We, I, I think historically, a lot of the time we've given pictures and pictures are the sort of thing that, you know, some people can really gain a lot out of it and some people can't. In our situation, what we're doing is providing analysis, and most of them are mapping products. But if you can imagine, when you have a large fire on the landscape, you need to know what it's doing, what it was doing, what it's going to do next, Mm -hmm. how fast is it moving, which direction is it going, how intense is it, like how, if I wanted to fight this fire, how could I do it? And you also need to know an awful lot about how much smoke it's putting up and where that smoke's going to go next. Right. So those are kind of the core sort of analytics that are going to be embedded in our products. And there will be a lot more nuance to it. We have so much information, like static spatial data sets about, you know, the locations of infrastructure and everything, even census data that can be paired into there where we can tell you features on the landscape that are important without you having to go and seek them out. And we can give you an ETA for the fire getting there. How, What level of threat is it actually under? Mm-hmm. And when it does make it there, you know, what's the probability that it'll be in a state that you could actually suppress it? You know, and and I should point out, this is not 
all NRCAN and CFS, the Forest Service here who's doing this. We are partnered closely with Environment Canada, especially on the air quality and smoke mm-hmm. monitoring side of this mission. And obviously, the Canadian Space Agency is deeply involved <laughs> too, right? I should hope so, yeah. <laughs> don't want to forget. Yeah, you don't want the forestry guys building the spaceship, trust me. <laughs> Excellent. You know, I so we talked a bit too about... Earlier on, we talked about the cycle of of fire management and the process by which, you know, the incident commanders go through. I think you you had something in mind, too, with WildfireSat and how it was going to deliver these data products, right? You weren't going to fire hose it down, but the timing is really important here and when these products come in. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's also the timing of when we collect the data. These types of satellites, they they orbit they synchronize with the sun. So they, they pass over the Earth at the same time every day, actually twice a day. It's like a 12-hour offset. But mm-hmm. if you look across the board, because every other mission that's been put up there for general purpose, they look at that nice medium of where everybody is kind of happy, but nobody's perfectly happy. That's the worst. <laughs> that's the worst spot to be. <laughs> Welcome to playing to the middle. But yeah, yeah they... Um, the majority of those overpasses around 10 in the morning. Some of them are around one o'clock for earth observation stuff. And wildfires, they have a rhythm to their day. They're, they're almost like a lot of living creatures, to be honest with you. They, they sleep at night, or they should, if they, mm-hmm. as long as they're not out being bad, like, you know, kids. You know, they wake up in the morning, they start to accelerate. And by mid-afternoon, late afternoon, it's what we call the peak burn period, where uh, the basically your temperatures kind of reach their maximum around one o'clock. It takes a few hours for the forest to dry out because of that. And so as you get to that late afternoon period, the fires are really, really rolling. That is strategically one of the the most important times of day to know what's going on. And that's where we're trying to target with this mission. Because it is dedicated to fire, we're able to control our orbit for what we actually want it to do. And so we will have a peak burn overpass. You can imagine it'll probably be about somewhere around 6 o'clock local time. Mm-hmm. And there will be the reciprocal around 6 a.m. And what we're going to do is take some of the data that comes in at 1 o'clock from these other general purpose satellites And then we're going to look at how the fire has progressed during that afternoon period up until six. And that's going to tell us how fast it's moving in the direction it's heading, right? And then we're we're measuring the energy output at that point. So very quickly afterwards, in in near real time, within 30 minutes of of that overpass time, we'll have produced all of the products and have the products into the hands of our fire managers. And that's important because early on, I, I was talking about the strategic sort of uh, decision-making. One round happens at that late afternoon period, you know, triaging how bad things really were. And one of them happens first thing in the morning, making an assessment of whether or not anything changed overnight. So these data products then are, are time to line up with those meetings. And the whole mission, you know, it's centered around that user. So as the data comes in, right at the time when they're looking to make those decisions, they have an accurate up-to-the-minute picture of what's going on with this fire. Exactly. You could make the argument that in that late afternoon period, they've got a lot of eyes on the fires. There's people out there in the bush and they're, and they're suppressing and they're in the helicopters and that. That's true. 
But in the command centers and that, sometimes you are operating in that sort of fog of war sort of state, right? There isn't, there isn't a whole lot of clarity on, on how bad things are going mm-hmm. on the ground or how good they're going uh, for the flip side of it. And you are relying on intel reports that are coming in over the radio a lot of the time. Oftentimes, if you do have at least one fire that's of serious concern, then those remote ones are kind of put on the back bench. And so this is kind of a uniform way, coast to coast to coast, to be able to have a full sort of strategic intel on every fire in the country. And at the same level of repeatable precision that, you know, standardized scientific processing can actually deliver. So it's not experience-based. It's not opinion-based. There's no emotional filter on it. It is just a, a consistent baseline that they can trust. And the flip side of things, let's, let's face it, nowadays, firefighters move from province to province so much during a response cycle. Well, they'll also have a similar tool available to them wherever they go. So something they're familiar with and a mm-hmm. whole set of data points that they can, they can trust. So you get subjective consistency out of the tool. So the reports are, 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 sorry, objective consistency, pardon me. You get clear, unfiltered reports about what's happening. And then these, these firefighters can rely on it, you know, from place yeah. to place. And, you know, I think the other great benefit there is it's, it's not just for the people who are on the front lines, but perhaps the people in the provincial monitoring centers who can keep an eye on what's happening more broadly. Exactly. It's easy to get carried away with this sort of vision that this thing is incredible and it's going to change everything. But let's play devil's advocate here. It's a thermal satellite. It's infrared based. Can't see through clouds. All right. Mm -hmm. And clouds are kind of one of those things that are always going to be there. So it isn't foolproof and it's not going to replace our conventional sort of aircraft monitoring, but it can reduce the reliance on it in a big way. And you know, some of the early work, I, I talked about how we are really focusing on knowledge exchange with our end users. I found some an interesting output of some of that was, you know, this notion that if they can rely on, on it at the end of the day, they probably would opt not to fly some days to go and, and just wait for the wildfires at mapping. But if they got to the end of the day and it was clouded out, they'd be unimpressed and probably fly no matter what the day after. You know, when we talk about, well, how can knowledge exchange inform an information system? Well, now we're actually going to be at about either at eight in the morning or somewhere around noon. We will be releasing a cloud forecast report for all of their fires. And that's going to say at 1800, this is the likelihood that you're going to get a wildfire sat shot of this fire. And if they know what the odds are for each and every one of them, that lets them plan ahead of time and say, you know Mm -hmm. what? This one's actually really important. We're going to go fly. Or, well, we're probably expecting cloud because it's going to rain. So who cares? We'll wait until tomorrow. And, you know, those sorts of pretty simple things for us to do on the science team side, but go an awful lot of way for, you know, how you can use it strategically in the real world. Right. So it comes back to managing resources and helping the, the incident commanders, you know, plan their days and, and put the resources where they can be of the most value. Absolutely. It also has a lot to do, you know, as as a, a science team and a mission team who's interfacing with people who have like very serious consequences to their decisions in life goes a long ways towards trust and transparency as well. 
we need to build that relationship and make sure that, you know, nobody goes into this with uh, some vision of, you know, science fiction futures and what you see on 24 and all that. No, it's a fixed budget. <laughs> I mean, like there's practical limitations to it, but we prefer to get ahead of that and, and make sure that people understand how valuable it really can be. And at the same time, where those, you know, barriers are always going to exist. You know, ultimately, I think everyone's going to win a lot more out of that. Absolutely. So let's come back to uh, data access. You know, this is a government-driven mission. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you, to, to what degree will this data be open access, you know, recognizing, you know, government funding, but also the need for careful stepping around emergency management situations? Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a great one. So it is it is going to be all part of that, you know, the federal government, we have open data policies for this sort of stuff, and it will be compliant with the open data policy. I say that tongue in cheek, knowing that open data does not necessarily mean real time analytics of potential for a fire to hit a town. Mm-hmm. There's a difference between the data that comes out of the satellite and the raw the level 1b imagery that will always be available for anyone any any researcher any other alternative application it's always going to be available but the near real time assessments of of like projections for where the fire is going to be in the next few hours and stuff like that those will be provided directly to the decision makers and the decision makers will have the choice of when they when and how they want to brief the public. And there is a good reason for that. They are the point of control on actually making the command decisions. They also are the people of boots on the ground. You know, we're looking at this with a spaceship and we're providing some analytics. They know how accurate those analytics really are in the real world. And and we don't want to undercut or, or come around the side when they're trying to manage a very dicey situation. So they, in the near real time aspects of that, they will have control over how they want to roll out that information. Mm-hmm. That, that said, all of the products we're producing will be available and certainly um, things that could be accessed in the future if people want to go back and do external reviews. And, and we see that sometimes with significant fire events, the, where consulting firms are hired to go back and analyze what was done and how. It's also, imagine if you're a decision maker, okay, and you're making the call that this one fire in the north, you're going to let it just burn because there's a low probability it's going to do anything. Mm -hmm. Well, now you have a record from us that says, you know, at the time that you made that decision, this is the report that we produced that basically said, that's probably a safe decision to make. And so as far as sort of back justifying your decision-making throughout the the whole process, it is actually kind of nice to have that evidence of what, of what information you had at the moment of that decision. So right. people win from that. But the flip side is no, I, nobody needs, you know, an automated product generated by a satellite being broadcast on the CBC in real time. Right, I'm all yeah, you, the what, CBC you, man, but <laughs> it causes confusion. <laughs> you risk losing the context too, right? So you know, I, yes. I like the idea that the science level data is available, but you, the, the derived emergency management 
pro, uh, emergency management products, you know, aren't going to be available in real time to the general public. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think there is a lot of concern around emergency management, and and people who aren't experts might could tend to get in there and, and try and armchair quarterback a little bit when they don't have that full context or experience with which to understand it. So. Providing some level of data is good, and then and then of course being able to show their math later and, and have a record for the decision making, I think could go a long way in providing confidence and and structure for some of those incidents. Exactly, and and the flip side is part of this whole knowledge exchange program is also going to be quite extensive amount of training materials and courses being made, so that people who actually have to make a decision with this data are going to have an understanding of where all the caveats and nuances to it are. That's not the sort of thing that we can make available to everyone, like in the general public. And as a result, you need expert decision makers who are still interpreting it. We'll make it as slick and as easy for them to interpret as possible, but you still need to be a person who is well-trained if you need to make a serious decision. And what we don't need is... um, you know, when that decision is made, those people need to be trusted. And my my sense is that if and when appropriate, they will share it. And I do know that a lot of the other stuff that we've done over the years with the more tactical imaging and whatnot, you know, they do share it with the stakeholders. They do share it with the towns and the, and the mayors and, and the community leaders uh, to help brief them and help people stay informed. But there can be issues when uh, when people encounter things indirectly or places they shouldn't. Like I know of an instance where a MODIS map of a fire that, uh, and, and for folks who don't know MODIS, it's like at best one kilometer resolution, right? So really, really coarse pixels, but easily producing fire products out of it. Well, I know of an example where one of those maps of a fire was found by the general public who had been evacuated from their town. And when they looked at it, it showed that basically a third of the town had been burned. But that was just because the resolution was a kilometer as opposed to a meter. So so, the, so these people who were evacuated and, and in a shelter, presumably, were, were looking at this modus image, you know, one kilometer resolution, and were getting the information or the picture that their town had burned when it actually hadn't. Is that fair? Yeah, that happened. And, and wow. the local authorities corrected the corrected the confusion instantaneously, right? Right. But it, but you can imagine the kind of the kind of chaos that that can cause. And and those types of products are available internationally and globally from systems like that, but there's appropriate uses for them. And those the appropriate use for for data like that is monitoring very remote fires or doing climatological sort of stuff. Maybe even early detection in certain scenarios. Sure. You big picture things, right? If you're talking, you know, where every pixel represents one kilometer, that that's a really big picture. It's a big difference when you're talking about a, what I would say the difference between a, a battlefield and a boxing ring. And uh, an urban interface fire is a boxing ring. You you need a lot more precise info in there, right? No kidding. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, so that makes sense then, because wildfire sat is going to release some of this data, but you're going to be careful around the context, and you're going to make sure that people, you know, have the the suitable product at the suitable time. Exactly, and and wildfire sat's more about giving you intel on the fires well before they come into direct contact with with values and infrastructure. 
it's not intended to provide intel on an urban interface event, a fire that's mm-hmm. already in a community. At that point, you need much higher tactical level products, not strategic ones. Yeah. Right. Yeah, so a whole different game then. Mm-hmm. So when is Wildfire Sat set to launch? Well, I mean, uh, I think anyone who's worked with a space mission is cautious to say an actual launch date. But uh, we are slated for sometime in the winter of 2027, 2028, Mm -hmm. uh, with intent to be online for the 2028 fire season. that I think in commercial terms, that might seem like a long time, but you got to also keep in mind, we need to build the entire information system and get the entire country ready to use it and understand it before that launch happens. Absolutely. So our, our end users might actually start seeing, they'll probably be seeing some simulated data and products, even operationally, a few years before launch. Excellent. And how can people stay in contact with the mission? How can people stay connected to what you're doing? Ooh. That's great. I I think uh, probably the easiest place to find it, if you look at the Canadian Space Agency, or actually, honestly, if you just Google the word wildfiresat, you're probably going to find me nattering on about it endlessly somewhere. (laughs) But uh, there is a website with the Canadian Space Agency. And, uh, you know, the further we get into the operational mission, the visibility will just continue to rise online. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for being here, Josh. It was great to hear about WildfireSat's mission and, and how you're using geospatial technology to uh, fight and manage wildfires. Oh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Anytime, eh? Thank you very much. This is the Nowhere Podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Neufeld. You can find Nowhere at NowherePodcast.com, on Twitter at Nowhere underscore pod, and you can find me at John underscore Neufeld. See you later. <laughs>